God, this is holy ground. It's holy ground not because of what the building is or because of who we are, God. It's holy ground because of who you are. It's holy ground because you are here, your Holy Spirit is here. And so, God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak through the words of this message, that uh, whatever it is that we have to learn, whatever it is that you need for us to know from Stephen's message 2,000 years ago, that it would hit home exactly where you need it to be, because we know it isn't just a 2,000-year-old message, it's a message for us today. So, God, we give you this time, we just trust in whatever it is that you have for us, that you will help us to be clear about it, that you will help us to hear it and help us to accept it and help us to understand it through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're in Acts 7. We're still in Acts 7. We've been in Acts 7 for a little while now, actually. Uh, Every once in a while, I I get somebody that says, aren't you going through the book of Acts kind of slow? I mean, how long are you going to be there? I don't know, a year, maybe two years. We'll see. I don't know. And I always kind of get this funny look. And so uh, there's, there's this Acts journal we've got. We're on page 38 right now, if you've got one of these. If you don't, we've got more in the back. And there's 168 pages. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but we're going to get there. But there was this guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he preached just on Acts 7. Just the chapter that we're in the middle of today. He preached on Acts 7, which is 60 verses total. And it took him 38 weeks to cover 60 verses. That's going through Acts slowly. I wish we could do that. I don't know in our world today, I don't know that our attention spans will, will let us. But here's the thing. The reason we're going slowly through the book of Acts is because it isn't just a history lesson, it's a today lesson. And it isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's about the beginning of the story that God continues with us today. And so it's important. It's important that we look at it and that we understand it, that we listen to it carefully. And as we as we look at this speech, this sermon, this message that Stephen gives to this group of people that are so angry with him, we realize that he's holding nothing back. But it isn't just something for them to hear. It's something for us to hear. And and it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can have it translated to where we can understand it and then be able to apply it to our lives. And so I really hope that that's what we're able to do today. Are we going slowly? Yes. But I think we have to go slowly. We're covering Acts 7 over three weeks, not 38 weeks. This is heavy stuff. Some of Acts is really, really fun. Some of it's heavy. This stuff today is actually pretty heavy. If we understand it just in the context of what Peter, excuse me, what Stephen was saying to this group of people, it's heavy. But when we do what we do around here, and that is to say, God, show us where where you're speaking to me in this text. That starts to get really, really heavy. And and it's interesting how Stephen goes about it, because there's something very obvious as we read it. When you realize what Stephen's trying to do, suddenly the obvious gets lost in the words that he's speaking. He's on trial, essentially, for the charge of blasphemy. They have told him the religious leaders that don't like him speaking about Jesus, that Jesus came to be our Savior and that there's a life after death in Jesus. They've charged Stephen with blasphemy against Moses and blasphemy against God. And in the Jewish church of 2,000 years ago, that was akin to a death sentence. In fact, blasphemy is what they killed Jesus for. They murdered Jesus for the charge of blasphemy. Well, Stephen is essentially defending himself against the same charge. But what's interesting is, 
Stephen spends this entire time that he's given for his defense giving a history lesson. He doesn't actually get to Jesus. What we're going to see next week is that he gets to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one that's causing these people the problems. But the history lesson and and pointing out all the points in, in time where the nation of Israel could have chosen differently is all Old Testament. He's using their own scriptures. He's talking about their founding fathers, these men that they're so proud of. And what Stephen does is that he takes advantage of something that existed in their day that doesn't always exist in ours. Stephen takes advantage of the importance of language. He takes advantage of how carefully people listened and how thoroughly they heard. And and he must have been quite a speaker because he does it so incredibly well. There's a word that he uses that's completely out of place in the Greek. And when we see it in the English, the translation, it's like, oh, that's interesting. But when you understand what he's doing, the man was absolutely incredible. See, back in this day, people listened to hear. They listened to to really hear what the speaker was saying. And so often in our world, and I know this is true of me, this is maybe occasionally true of you, we listen not to hear, but for a chance to be heard. We listen to what people are saying only long enough that we can interrupt them when they take a second breath and we can start talking. Stephen is talking to people who are listening very carefully. And he is using language and words and carefully crafting how he does it to make sure that what they're really hearing is that he's talking about their history. But in recounting their history, he's talking about the holiness of God and how it is actually them who are blaspheming against Moses and God and the law that they hold so dearly. And the lesson for us that we've got to be careful of, it's really easy to say, well, I go to church this Sunday and I'm a Christian, so I get to talk about anybody the way I want. I can say anything I want. I can point out any sin or fault or flaw because I'm a Christian and I go to church. And that's essentially what these people were doing with Stephen. But what Stephen points out is actually we're not supposed to do that. That, that's not, in fact, what we're supposed to do at all. And that's why these people got so angry. So this passage is steeped in Old Testament scripture. He uses direct quotes and he uses history that fills in along the quotes. And the man knew his Bible, his scripture so well that all of this is done from memory. And so every assertion, every assertion, every statement, every claim is backed up by their own scriptures. All of it is rooted in their own history, not just the stories, but the specifics. Stephen proved that he was educated. He knew his scripture. And when he started talking to these people, he was speaking exactly to where they were living. And that's why they got so angry. It would have been interesting to have been there and watched all of this happen. This crowd that started off by pushing him on his heels, then they gathered more and they were picking up steam. And suddenly they say, well, what do you say about the charges, Stephen? And he begins to speak. And you can just feel as he's talking. And as we go through it, you're going to see it. The anger in the room is just going up. Because rather than them proving blasphemy on his part, he's showing that they're actually the ones who are blaspheming. But he does it in such a kind and loving way. And you remember back, Luke said about Stephen that he was full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. I said over and over and over that the world today needs more men and women who are like Stephen, who are filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't point out the things that they do wrong. He lets them hear them and see them for themselves. And it's so easy as Christians to point out the problems in other people without actually looking at ourselves. 
Because when we dig into this text and we see what Stephen is really saying, the points that he brings out, the history as he recounts it, which is absolutely scriptural and biblical, the point that he's making is that he's pointing these people to their own sinfulness. And the hard thing for us is it's hard to read it and to truly understand it and not see our own sinfulness. It's hard to read it and to understand and accept it and not realize, wow, we could be doing better. That, that you know what, sometimes I'm the one that blasphemes against God. And so often, I, I, I've been saying over the last few weeks, we get to choose. We get to choose which side of the story to be on and which side of history. And what Stephen is doing is trying to help them choose the right side. Today, 2,000 years, years later, it's interesting that just like in this passage from Stephen, it is often the most religious people, the ones who say that they're the best Christians, they've got the longest history in the church, I know my Bible so well, they're the ones that seem to take great liberties pointing out the sins and the faults and the flaws of other people. That's what sends people packing from church. That's what sends people away from God. Stephen isn't doing that. Stephen is recounting the history and helping them see that, in fact, you know what, we're, we're the ones that he's talking about here. We're the ones that didn't get it right all along. But rather than accept that and confess it and repent, they continue to get more angry. So every last one of us, we get the opportunity which side of the story we're going to be on. We get this, to choose which side of the gossip are we going to be on. We get to choose which side of stopping the lie that we hear are we going to be on. Which side of God's history among us are we going to be on. So last week in, in verse 37, we read Stephen quote Moses and he said, One day God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Moses says to the people in Israel as he's leading them out of Egypt, One day God will send from you a prophet from among your people. Stephen says this to him in verse 37 and they got angry because they assumed Stephen meant himself. He thought he was staking the claim that they had better listen to him because now he's claiming to be a prophet. In fact, he wasn't doing that at all. What he was doing was saying, that prophet was Jesus, the one that you killed. Moses said, one day God will send a prophet from among you. Jesus was the prophet. So right off the bat in verse 37, they're starting to get upset with him. We pick up in chapter 7, verse 20. At this time, and we're going to jump through verses, so I'll try to keep you, if you're following your Bible, I'll try to keep you in track with where we are. At this time, Moses was born. So what was the blasphemy charge against Moses and God? So he starts with Moses. At this time, Moses is born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. That's an important thing, because Moses wasn't your normal baby. Moses was a Hebrew baby, born in Egypt, put in a basket, and sent out to the river. And it just happened that God sent Pharaoh's daughter and her servant to capture, to catch Moses and to bring him to her house. And so what... What Stephen is doing, saying, God knew what was going on with Moses, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Verse 22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Ah, oh, these people knew Moses was mighty in his words and deeds. They were, they, they were happy to claim Moses a part of their family line. But this part about being brought up, uh, instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians, the Bible never says that. And so if you go back and go, well, where is it in Exodus? Where does it talk about Moses being trained and educated and going to school with the Egyptians? Here's the deal. It doesn't. But the history that the Israelites told from generation to generation to generation was about the fact that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's home and he was educated as an Egyptian child. 
And so Stephen isn't making something up. He's not filling into the story what shouldn't be there because we've got to be careful with that. He's telling a part of the history of Israel that everybody knew, and he's simply reminding them that he had a place in Pharaoh's house. Verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he takes this big jump. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, the same group of people that Stephen is addressing. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, Moses did, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Interesting for him to tell the history this way. Stephen is trying to speak of Jesus who's bringing salvation by his hand, and the people don't want anything to do with Stephen. What he's doing in his words is saying, choose the right side of the story, guys. And so he's recounting where the Mo Moses and the people around him did not. They did not choose the right side of the story. Uh, but the man who was wronged, excuse me, and the following day he appeared to them, verse 26. They were quarreling and they tried to reconcile them, saying, man, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? See, they do not accept and understand the truth that Stephen is sharing. And so Stephen is trying to bring their history, history and say, we've been here before, guys. Let's get it right this time. As he accounts this history, it's interesting that the most obvious question to ask this group of lying and deceitful men is, why do you wrong each other? Why are you wronging me? Are we not brothers? Are we not family? Do we not agree in our worship of God? Why is it that you choose to wrong each other? At this point, they've got to be getting angry that he would even ask the question. Verse 27, back to talking about Moses. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over thus? They didn't want Moses as a ruler and a judge. They didn't like the way that he did things any more than they liked Stephen saying the things that he was saying. Verse 30, he goes on. Now, 40 more years had passed and an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in a flame, a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. The problem is none of these guys that are accusing Stephen are trembling about anything. The other thing that they're not doing is looking at what they're really doing. There's no fear among them whatsoever. And so he's trying to go back and say, you know, Moses, he got it right. He heard the voice of the Lord and he knew, he knew that that was God and he better not look. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place you are standing is holy ground. This place is holy ground. Not because there's something special about the concrete floor. Not because of the building. It's holy ground because for 60 years before we moved here, the Methodist church used this as a place to reach adults and children with the good news of Jesus. For 64 years now, this has been a place that God has, God has lived on the grounds that we now call our church. But it isn't because of the ground. It isn't because of the church or the Bible camp. It isn't because of us. It's because God has chosen to be here. Just like with Moses, the moment he was standing there, Moses didn't know it was holy ground until God spoke to him and God's present. And he said, Moses, this is holy ground. Why? Because I'm here. Wherever God is, it's holy ground. And we tend to get a little bit fast and loose with that as Christians today. We think there's something great about us when, in fact, the only thing great in the church is God. 
He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. I'm going to help take care of this, Moses, and now come, and I'm going to send you to Egypt. So this man, and he, he skips a bunch of Old Testament passages here. Verse 35, he says, So this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. The Israelites denied Moses. And yet God said, not only are you going to be going to be the one who's going to save my people, you're going to redeem them. I'm going to send you Moses to bring my people out. But the nation of Israel wouldn't even recognize Moses, just like they refused to recognize Jesus, just like they refused to recognize Stephen. Verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. They couldn't argue. They liked that part of their history. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to believe that about Stephen. They certainly didn't want to believe that about Jesus. He's recounting their history where they got the wrong side of the story. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. This is one of those moments, I told you this was coming, where he does something fascinating with language. So you got a picture. There's three million people that Moses has led out of Egypt. They've been in slavery to the Egyptians. They left with the plunder of Egypt, which means the wealth of Egypt. Pharaoh said, just get out of here. Take whatever you want and leave. I don't want you. Seven plagues is more than enough. Go. And so they all leave. And Moses carries them out of Egypt and they go into an area about the size of Wisconsin and they proceed to wander by whining for 40 years. They whined and they complained. They didn't like what God was doing. They whined and complained for 40 years. But Stephen doesn't call them the wandering Israelites. Stephen calls them in English the congregation. The word in Greek is ecclesia. It's a gathered group of believers. And what he's trying to get across to these guys that are, that are coming against him, which is so easy to do in the church, if you can get two or three or four people to disagree or dislike or call out the problems of somebody else, suddenly you've got a mob attacking someone. And this mob is attacking Stephen. But he's saying even those disobedient Israelites, he uses the word ecclesia. They're a congregation. They're a group of believers who believe in God. And what he's trying to get across to them is, We should be in Ecclesia here, guys. You're here standing against me and you're standing against the Son of God, but we should be in Ecclesia, a word that didn't come into common usage until the Christian church in the New Testament. And so he's he's drawing this connection between Moses and the Israelites and Jesus and the Christian church. And those guys who are mad at him are even more mad at him now because what he's doing is he's getting serious. He's laying it all on the line to preach the truth. This week and and what we finish with next week is going to be where Stephen brings it all home. So he, talking about Moses, received living oracles to give us. That would be prophets. That would be the prophets of the Old Testament, some of them here in Moses' days, that God sent in order to speak to the people. But our fathers, in verse 39, refused to obey him. But they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Folks, we do this. And and, and it's easy to laugh at, but it's so not funny. We go back to the things that kill us. We go back to the things that separate us from Jesus. We go back to the things that suck the life out of us because we know it. And there's some comfort in that pain and misery. The people in Egypt said, let's go back to Egypt. At least then we had food that we could eat. They didn't like the food that God gave them. 
They didn't like the fact that they never went hungry. They didn't like the fact that God took care of them in a way that God knew was best, but it wasn't what they wanted. They said, let's go back to Egypt. And how often do we complain about the way that God is carrying us forward and providing us for us in life? When we say, man, life was easier when I had that problem. Life was easier when I was in that mess. Life was at least I knew what to do. It amazes me. I had some opportunity. I didn't talk about this last hour. I had the opportunity at one of my uh, former churches to do some work in jail ministry. And, and it was really cool because it's such a unique opportunity to, to talk to guys who really often are ready to listen. And the thing that always amazed me was when they get to a point and, and they were ready to be able to be released from jail and we're all excited that they're going to get out. Three months later, we get the call that they're back. And it became enough of a thing that I started asking them because I got to be friends with these guys. And the thing that I heard over and over and over is just like the Egyptians. What they said is, I know how to live in jail. I don't know how to live out there. Freedom scares me. And I realized that's all of us. Being free in Jesus scares us. We've got responsibilities now. Sometimes it's easier to live in bondage because of all the things that we can't do. But Jesus came to give us life. And the Israelites complained and complained and complained. And so in verse 40, they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. The God that leads by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, the God that speaks through a burning bush, the God that released them from Egypt, from the grip of Pharaoh, that wasn't enough. They said, make for us gods who will go before us. They wanted to worship false gods of their creation rather than the God who created and delivered them from slavery. It strikes me as just like people today who say, I'm not, I'm, I'm really spiritual. I'm probably one of the most spiritual people, you know, but I don't go to church and I don't believe in God, but I'm very spiritual. I love those conversations. Whew. You're very spiritual. What do you believe in? Well, I believe in the stars and I believe in the universe loving me and taking care of me. And I believe, and it's that point that I try not to vomit, but out of respect, I keep the conversation going. They say, Aaron, make false idols. Well, well, what were the false idols? They weren't using wood in the desert. They weren't chipping away stones. You know what they made them out of? They made them out of gold because, remember, they had all the plunder of, of Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness, but they were stupid, filthy rich. They just didn't know where their real wealth came from. And so they wanted to make idols that they could worship. They wanted to worship their creation, not the creator. It's like people say, I'm very spiritual, but I don't believe in God denying the very God that created them and lifting up spirituality that makes them feel better. And I've never completely understood that. And yet this attitude is so much at the heart of the divisions and disagreements in the church today. It's still what people do. We worship the God that we want or God the way we want him to be, not the way God presents himself to us in the Bible. That's what happened to the nation of Israel as they're wandering. Going on, as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They completely dismissed Moses as their leader, even though he was the one that God had called and anointed to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land. These faithful Jewish people are not happy at this point because they're every bit as lost as the wandering Israelites were. They made Moses irrelevant and they said, we want to follow other gods. We need to stop here for a moment and say, this is why it is so important that we pour into our kids. It isn't that the kids are just our future. The kids are our today. They are our here and our now. And here's why I say that, because some of you walked in with babies that are in 
cute little seats that probably detach from the car seat where you keep them safe all the way to kids that are graduating from high school or heading off to college or maybe in college. Here's why it's so important, because the world around you wants Jesus to be irrelevant to them. The world around you wants your children to doubt everything that their church tells them to believe when they're growing up. And if we don't pour into them now, today, to help make sure that they understand that Jesus isn't just real, He is alive, He is relevant, and He died for their sins. If they don't understand that, the world is going to make sure that they hear a very, very different message and is going to give them all kinds of false idols to follow. And if we don't do our part in the time that we have to make sure that our young people and our adults understand who Jesus really is, We're going to see them, Jesus, as irrelevant, just the way the Israelites said that Moses was irrelevant. So what did they do in verse 41? They made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. you got to get a grip on this. They made a gold, they melted down the gold, probably jewelry and all kinds of other stuff. They melted it down, they made a big golden calf, and now they're going to worship that. And the Bible says they rejoiced, they rejoiced in the work of their hands. They worship their own creation, not their creator. They worship their own religiousness. They worship whatever it was that they thought made them feel better, but there was nothing but emptiness there. There's nothing to be worshipped because there's no relationship whatsoever. They worship the vast nothingness, the expanse of the universe that is nothing but an ice-cold, frigid vacuum. When the creator of the universe delivered them from slavery, and has been leading them to the promised land. They chose to build a golden calf, and in that they rejoiced. They put their faith in the nothingness that is the universe. It's just like the people today, and maybe you know, I love talking to these people too. They say they pray to the universe, and they appeal to the universe, and they trust the universe, and they believe that the universe will take care of them. I looked through picture. I looked at pictures through the big telescope, you know, and I looked out into the universe, and you know what? It's black. And it's cold, and it has no heart, and it doesn't know you're alive. Jesus, on the other hand, does. And you know, what spiritual people still do today is they worship the vast nothingness of the universe and ignore and rebel against the God who created them. And so God does exactly what he promised to do, and we ignore and rebel. Verse 42, God turned away and gave them over to the worship Now, over to worship the host of the heaven. The host of heaven means a star in the planets. It's why I use the example of the universe. God gave them a way to allow them to just worship the universe. They worship the stars and the planets. They worship the stuff that's out there that is real but isn't living. And he goes on, he says, that's written in the book of the prophets. And remember, Stephen has got all of this memorized now, right? As it's written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me, God speaking, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? God saying, did you give me anything when I provided for you, when I kept you alive, when I brought you out of slavery, when I made sure that you never went hungry? Did you give me anything? Of course not. They whined and complained. And after they got done whining and complaining, they made a golden calf to worship and to ignore God. That's what they did. He says, you tucked up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. Moloch is a false idol of the Canaanites. And a while ago, you saw me show a picture of the gates of hell. 
northern Israel. There's literally a place called the gates of hell. And the reason it's called the gates of hell is because for centuries there was human sacrifice. And what they sacrificed there was human infants in the hopes that, that their gods, Moloch and others, would show favor on them. And so thousands and thousands and thousands of children were sacrificed. And what Stephen is saying is you're no different than those people. You're not doing anything any different because you're choosing to believe God to be who you want Him, not who He is. And so what does God say? You took up the tent of Moloch, the star of your God, Rephan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Babylon was the worst place they could think of. That was the place where bad was really bad. And to send them in exile beyond Babylon sends them into the the abyss on earth. They couldn't imagine being anywhere that's worse. So those Israelites that wandered for 40 years in the state of Wisconsin, 3 million people, just kind of do the mental math on that for a moment. 3 million people doing circles. Eventually the tail is going to catch up with the head, right? The head's going to catch up with the tail. And they kept wandering for 40 years because they whined and complained and they wouldn't listen to God. The whole point of them being there was to get to the land that God had promised them to be. Do you know how many made it of the three million? Two. Two made it to the promised land. See, when you want to choose to worship something that isn't God, God will let you. And God will let you live the life that follows. Of those three, three and a half million people, all but two of them never made it to the promised land. And not exactly Israel's greatest moment in history. And when Stephen recounts it, what he's doing is saying the same thing is happening. History is repeating itself. And what I will say that he didn't say is this. It's the sinners who put the saint on trial. It's the blasphemers who put the one accused of blasphemy on trial. It's the sinners that put the saint on trial. And how often does that happen in the church? How often do we do that? I've heard from hundreds, literally hundreds of people in my 25 years of ministry You know, they they didn't leave the church because they didn't like the music. They didn't leave the church because the preaching was bad. They didn't leave the church because the building wasn't spiffy enough or the coffee didn't taste good or they had the wrong creamer. Do you know why they left church? Because of how Christians treated them. They left church because people didn't treat them well. People didn't live out the love of Jesus for them. These people are the ones that should be embracing Stephen and listening to his message as he talks about Jesus. But at this point, all he's done is talked about their own history and pointed out how they're sinners. And so that's why I say the world needs more men and women like Stephen. How did Luke describe him early on? As full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Could you imagine if the Christian church today was filled with men and women who could be described as being full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit? Do you imagine the message that we would send to the world that doesn't believe? They would start believing real quickly. The world needs more men and women like Stephen. They need more believers, you and I, who who don't focus on pointing out sins or problems or flaws or our frustrations and instead point people to a new life in Jesus. That's all Stephen's trying to do. He's trying to help these people get on the right side of history. And when we point people to a new life with Jesus, it starts with repentance, which is why Stephen is pointing out the sinfulness of these folks in their history. But what happens when we don't do that? What happens in our day when God lets us worship what we want? Go where we want, follow and believe what we want. Well, there's a guy named Paul. We're going to meet him here in Acts pretty quick. He wrote a letter to the church in Rome. Romans 1, starting in verse 24. I'm going to skip a little bit. Starting in verse 24, going through verse 32. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts 
of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is what happened when people choose to worship creation in themselves, not God, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Warning sign to America, folks. For this reason, God gives them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors, creators. They imagine new ways of evil. They're even disobedient to their parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to people who practice them. That's written by a guy named Paul. We're going to meet him in a a few weeks named Saul. And the reason I think that Paul writes in such strong terms is because Paul had a moment where he had the opportunity to change how he was living, living and to choose to get on the right side of the story, the right side of history. And he did that. He got on God's side. And now as he's looking across and he's talking about it, he's saying, here's the stuff that you've got to worry about. This is the stuff that I was caught up in. This is the stuff that I used to see around me. And he's warning the church. And this 2,000-year-old passage is warning us today. Stephen is still warning us. In the church today. See, here's the deal. Jesus has done his part in fulfilling God's plan. Jesus died for your sins. God raised him from the grave. God did his part. Stephen did his part. He stood for truth and he chose truth. And he lovingly warned people of the consequences. Paul did his part in warning us. And now it's time for us to choose. It's time for us to do our part and to choose to stand for the truth of Jesus or not. And that's where we are in America today. And unfortunately, the Christian church is almost completely silent in the face of everything else that's happening. And if we don't change, we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of American history. And so what I'll say to you today is that you've got the chance right now, right here today, to choose which side of God's story do you want to be on. Of all those descriptions of people, which ones do you want to define you? How do you want people to talk about you when you're gone? What do you want your children and your friends to know about you? We've got the chance to be on the right side of history. And yet so often what the world does, what the enemy of God does, is uses Christians to beat up other Christians. We use churches to separate people away. We use Christians to point out sins and faults and flaws and and habits and addictions and patterns and whatever it else is. And so you better get yourself figured out before you come back. And then we go a step further and we say, well, I go to this church and you go to that church, so you must be completely wrong. Sadly, just like with Stephen, it's all too often other Christians who draw the lines in the sand that divide as we criticize and as we gossip and as we speak negatively about each other and other churches. I don't want us to do that. I don't think that's who we are. I don't think that a, that a Bible-believing, teaching church talks about people that way. So we've got this opportunity this afternoon, this, 
this uh, reality that's out there, we get to address at four o'clock at Robbins Island. A group of men and women, pastors in the area, have gotten together and they've created United Night of Worship. 4 p.m. Robbins Island today. All kinds of other churches. Yeah, maybe they read different Bible translations than we do, but that's okay. Maybe they have a little bit of a different theology. Their belief system is 3% different than ours might be. That's okay. Here's the deal. We're all gathering together at 4 o'clock to worship the one thing that we can agree on, and that is God is our creator and redeemer. And so at 4 o'clock today, you've got the opportunity to choose to be a part of a big united night of worship, to make a statement that, you know what, I stand for the truth of Jesus. I happen to go to the Open Door Christian Church. But I recognize there's a lot of other good churches out there. I stand for the truth of Jesus. we got that opportunity at 4 o'clock today. I, I, I hope you choose to be there. But even more important than that, we, we've got the chance to choose to be God's people. We've got the chance to choose to take on a new name, the, new, the name of Christian, Christ follower. And we've got a chance to choose to put ourselves on the right side of history, on God's story at work among us today. Began years and years and years ago. It continued in the book of Acts and it's continuing right here among us. The question is, what side of the story are you going to choose to be on? Let's pray. God, thank you for Stephen. Thank you for a tough message. Thank you for the way that he loved his people. He loved the Israelites so much. He loved his Jewish brothers and sisters so much. He wanted them to know Jesus. <laughs> he loved them so much and he spoke so passionately, God. It cost him his life because they didn't want to hear it. Eh, most of us probably aren't going to lose our lives for standing for you. But we're actually afraid of a lot less than that. It's only in the power of your Holy Spirit alive and at work among us that we can choose to be on your side of history, to choose to be a part of the story that you're writing in us and with us and through us. It's only through your Holy Spirit that we can choose Jesus. God, I pray that you would use the history of Israel, the history that Stephen recounted, for us to look at today and say, wow, it's happened more than once. It's happening again now. I want to make sure I choose to be on the right side. God, help us to choose you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the deal. At the end of the day, you get to choose. You get to choose what side of the story and what side of history on. I can't tell you you can become anything you want. Because Boyd and I, when we were kids, we wanted to be Lou Nanny and play for the North Stars. How did that work for you? Not so good. I can't promise you can be whatever you want. But you know what? I can promise that you can choose to be on the right side of the story that God is writing among us. You can choose where it is that you want to spend your eternity. You can choose what it is that you believe about Jesus. And that's the single most important choice that you will ever make in your life.